Well, thank you, Brother Ron, and thank you, church family, for being in your place here today. Let's take our Bibles together this morning, and let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter number 20, please. The 20th chapter in John's Gospel is where we'll focus on today as we are continuing our journey through the great chapters of the Bible. And John chapter number 20 is where we'll land today. And of course, if you have a copy of uh, the notes there in your bulletin, you'll notice that John 20 focuses in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so together, we're going to discuss and consider uh, the resurrection of Christ. This is not just a message that ought to be preached on Easter Sunday morning, but this is a message that's good for any time, isn't it? Uh, for us to consider uh, the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. John chapter number 20 is where we'll find our text together this morning. Would you look with me in verse number one? The Bible says, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth a stone taken away from the sepulcher. Would you skip down with me just a little bit to verse Number 19, the Bible says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus, and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. I believe I can say this beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the greatest day in the history of our world without any hesitation and without any exaggeration is the day that we just read of, the day in which Christ Jesus rose from the dead. And no more significant and no more impactful day has the world ever experienced. This day began with great despair, but it ended with great hope. Now, this day began as a very dark day, but it ended as a very bright day. This day began with great sorrow and ended with great rejoicing. And as so many great days are, this day was completely unexpected and unanticipated. Just as no one anticipated the skies would be filled with angels announcing his arrival or his birth to the shepherds that night so long ago, so no one anticipated as they woke up on this morning and they made their way to the tomb where he was buried, they never dreamed that the stone would be rolled away and that the one that they had buried just a few short days before would be risen and would be alive forevermore. Christ's death on the cross announced the severity of our sin and our wickedness. However, his resurrection declared that the curse of sin and the curse of wickedness had been defeated. Christ's death announced the power of the devil and the power of darkness and evil. But his resurrection announced a superior power that is the superior power of God and holiness. Can I say that a series of messages on the great chapters of the Bible would be incomplete. It would be lacking without some time spent looking at the greatest and most miraculous monumental moment in the history of 
humanity. The truth is, each of the gospels, did you know each of the gospels contain a chapter dedicated to the resurrection of Christ Jesus? Matthew covers it in the 28th chapter. Mark covers it in Mark 16. Luke covers it in Luke 24. And of course, John deals with it here in the 20th chapter. Not even his birth, not even the story of his nativity is covered in such detail in every one of the gospels, for it is left out altogether in the gospel of Mark and the gospel of John. Now, as we begin to this morning together, it is important for us to note uh, of the fact that God was very careful for us uh, to make note of the fact or to reveal to us that his resurrection took place on a specific day. The Bible tells us on two separate occasions that his resurrection happened on the first day of the week. We are, we are told that in, in verse number one and verse number 19. Uh, this day, of course, would take on added significance being that it was the day in which Christ rose from the dead. You see, throughout Israel's history, Saturday was their holy day. Saturday was their day that was commonly known of as the Sabbath. It was a day that they commemorated and a day that they celebrated by, uh, by, by worshiping and by refraining from work and by resting as the Bible told them to do so. Uh, however, uh, just as much as made about the Sabbath in the Old Testament is made uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament, about the first day of the week, the day that we know of as Sunday. And here's what we discover from our text about the relationship that exists between disciples or believers and the first day of the week as a result of Jesus rising from the dead on the first day of the week. Let me just share a couple of thoughts with you by way of introduction. First of all, I want you to understand this, that disciples assemble on the first day of the week. You'll see that in verse number 19. The Bible says there in verse number 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled. So you must know, you must understand, why are we here today? Why are we doing this? Why do we do this week after week after week? What is the point of all of this? And we discover in our Bibles that the point of all of this is that since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, disciples have not ceased to gather, to assemble on the first day of the week. Now this night, the disciples assembled together uh, to discuss, no doubt, the events of the previous few days. And can you imagine the conversations that they were having? Already rumors were beginning to swirl about an empty tomb and an encounter that Mary Magdalene had had with the Lord earlier that day. You can read of that account in verses 11 through verse number 18. Perhaps Peter and John discussed how they raced to the tomb and how John got there first and he stood outside of the tomb and Peter rushed in to see that the body of Jesus was gone and that the clothes that he had been born or that he had been buried in were laying there to need in an orderly fashion. And they were having discussions about those things. And I'm sure there were equal points, uh, excitement and, and joy as well as fear and anxiety. The Bible does tell us that fear was a major element in their assembly on this night. The Bible tells us that they were behind a, a door that was, was shut and perhaps was locked because of fear of the Jews from this point on, can I tell you that assembling together on the first day of the week would become a part of their normal routine and their normal worship. 
Paul would instruct believers in Corinth that when they assembled on the first day of the week, they were to bring their gifts for the Lord's work in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse number 2. The first day of the week actually took on a, a new name or a new title. Uh, for as John, the apostle, was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, he writes in Revelation chapter number 1 and verse number 10 about how he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It was so much a part of John's life and routine that though he was exiled all alone on Patmos, it was still a day that he gave over to worshiping the Lord and to being in the Spirit. By assembling with other disciples on the Lord's day, here's what we proclaim. We proclaim two key truths. Number one, we, we are saying that the Lord is worthy of our very best. You see, we, we're given seven days. And for us to assemble on the very first day tells, tells the Lord and tells others that God is important to us. He's so very important to us that we're willing to give this whole day over to him in worship and in service to the Lord. You're making that statement every time you pull out of your driveway and your neighbors sit in their house and they look out the window. There they go again. You know what you're telling them? You're telling them our God is worthy of this first day of the week. But not only are you proclaiming the truth that he is worthy of this first day, that he's worthy of your very best, but you're also proclaiming this truth. You're saying this by, by assembling on the first day of the week, I am proclaiming that I believe in the truth of the resurrection. That's why it's important that we worship and we assemble on the first day of the week. It's what disciples do Notice, secondly, as we consider this introductory portion of our message, not only do disciples assemble on the first day of the week, but we also discover that disciples assemble together even in difficult times. Would you look at verse number 19 again? Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, there's their assembly on the first day of the week, but notice how they were assembled. They were assembled for fear of the Jews. You know, if there ever was a time when they might have been excused from assembling, it might have been this day. Perhaps word was already spreading that the disciples uh, were behind Christ's disappearance from the tomb. We know that this was a common rumor that was spread by the Roman soldiers who had received money from the chief priests and Jewish leaders to lie about the empty tomb. We read of that in Matthew 28, verses 12 to 15. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly that the Jewish leaders called the Roman soldiers to them and they said, listen, we're going to give you some money and with this money, we expect that you repeat this story whenever you're asked about the empty tomb and about a risen Savior, you repeat this story that the disciples came by night and they stole Jesus' body. He's not really risen from the dead. He's just hidden or buried someplace else. Now, what a silly story that is to think that 11, 11 men some of them fishermen, one a publican or a tax collector, uh, to think that these men would have the ability, would have the strength to overpower and to overcome the power of the Roman government to roll the stone away themselves and to steal the body out of the tomb and then to hide it somewhere that no one would ever find. What a crazy story. And yet, that was the story that was being repeated and so as the disciples, as the believers assembled that night, they locked the door. They closed the door for fear of the Jews. 
There was, there was real fear and anxiety that existed in their heart and in their lives. And yet, in spite of all of this fear and in spite of all of this danger and this difficulty, what do we find them doing? We find them still assembling, don't we? In other words, they didn't let a little fear and a little anxiety and a little difficulty keep them from being together, keep them from worshiping and from assembling. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10 and verse number 25 that disciples are not to forsake the assembling uh, uh, together as the manner of some is. And, and, and we're not, listen, so much the more as we see the day approaching. Listen, regardless of what is going on around us, what we're doing here today is important. It is significant and it is necessary. You know, it has become acceptable among some to avoid assembling with other believers depending on circumstances. Now, I must say that there, there, there are times in which we experience legitimate reasons why we're not able to assemble with other disciples on the Lord's day. For instance, there may be someone who is maybe even sitting at home right now and they're perhaps watching the service online and they're doing so because physically they are not able to get out of a bed and to walk to a car and to turn a car on and to pull it out of the driveway and to drive to church. They're just not physically able to do those things. And as a result, listen, they are not able to assemble with the rest of us as disciples and believers. My experience has been with those folks as I visit them and as I talk to them on the phone and as I have interaction with them, that they're not home because they want to be. They're home because they have to be. They want to be here. They miss it so desperately. They're just not able to be here because of their physical health issues. Perhaps maybe there are some that wish that would long to be in God's house this morning, but due to mandated work responsibilities, they are not able to be here. They're here as often as they can. They're here every time the doors are open that they're not at work, but they're not able to be here because of the job that they work and because of the responsibilities that they have. But can I say that, that, that disciples do not lay out of church just due to, well, I'm sort of having a bad day or... I'm sort of afraid to go to church or I really don't want to go to church or I don't feel like going to church. Listen, that type of thinking is irresponsible and it is not in line with biblical order that is found throughout the New Testament. No, believers assemble, disciples assemble even in the midst of difficult times. Can I say thirdly by way of introduction that when disciples assemble, he is in the midst of them. Look what happens in verse number 19. The Bible says that the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. That night with only the word of Mary Magdalene that she had seen the risen Savior and the visit by Peter and John to the empty sepulcher as proof that Christ was indeed risen, the disciples assembled. And while they were together, the Bible tells us, Christ appeared and he stood in the midst and he offered to them a message of peace. You know, oftentimes we, we think about as, as, as church members and as pastors and, and again, as just people in the church, we think, well, who's going to be there today? It's been a while since I've seen so-and-so. I wonder if they're going to show up. Some of you might have walked in the room and thought to yourself, I wonder who's going to be sitting in my pew today. Or maybe, maybe you have this thought, I wonder, I wonder who's not going to say hello to me today. Who's going to look at me and go the opposite direction? We often think about the people that we're going to see when we assemble in the church house, don't we? 
And it may be who we didn't see and who we wish we would have seen or who we wish would have said hello to us or we would have had an opportunity to say hello to. But I want to remind you, I want to remind you that here today is more than just a human audience. Here today are more than just flesh and blood. But according to Scripture, listen, when disciples assemble, Christ Jesus is in the midst. You see, I I have the incredible responsibility and privilege of being the pastor of this church. But you know, the term pastor, it just speaks of an under-shepherd. We have a shepherd. He is the great shepherd. His name is Jesus. This flock is not mine. This flock is Christ's. And Jesus, listen, Jesus is here in the midst of us. Think about that for just a moment. Think about that. If you, if you were under the impression that Jesus was going to show up at a church within 100 miles of here on Sunday, October the 23rd, I have no doubt, if we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus was going to show up and that Jesus was going to speak a message, that he was going to appear in the midst of that congregation, in the midst of that assembly of disciples, and we'd say within 100, some of you drive 500 miles, 1,000 miles. I have no doubt many of us would do that. And we would say, I want to be there because I heard Jesus was going to be there. Can I just be real honest with you? Every Sunday morning, Jesus is right here. We may not see him physically, but he is here. Because the Bible says that Jesus made this statement in Matthew 18 and verse number 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. And Christ also proclaimed just before his ascension in Matthew 28 and verse number 20, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. We can be certain that when we assemble on the Lord's day, the audience is always more than just a human audience, but there is a divine presence that is promised. And the message is more than just a message that comes from human lips, but the message, listen, is a divine message so long as it comes out of God's word and it flows through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He, listen, he is in the midst of us when we assemble. So you may wonder, why do we do this week after week? And do I really want to keep doing this? And may I remind you that disciples for 2,000 years now have assembled on the first day of the week. It's what they do. And by doing so, they proclaim that Jesus is worthy and that he truly is risen from the dead. And the disciples or believers, not only do they assemble on this first day of the week, but they also assemble even in the midst of difficult days. You may be having some difficult days and you had to maybe push through some things to get here this morning. And I'm glad you're here because this is what disciples do. And can I say that when disciples gather, when they assemble and they do so according to what God has told them and how God has divined that we do things. He shows up. He is in the midst of us together here today. We are told that during this assembly of his disciples on the first day of the week, that the risen Savior made his first post-resurrection appearance to them as they assembled together. This appearance was significant because it infused his followers with three essential gifts Three essential things that they would need in the days to come. You see, the confirmation of his resurrection, when they saw him alive, it bestowed or infused these gifts into their hearts and their lives, equipping them for a lifetime of service to their Savior. Now, what were these gifts? We're, we're, we're finding them very clearly in verses 20 and 21 and verse number 22. Three specific things that they were infused with or that they were endowed or blessed with upon seeing the resurrected Savior. And are these gifts still 
significant to us today? Are they still things that we receive when we read and learn about the resurrection of our Savior? I believe that they are. I believe that they're available to us today. And if you came into this room and perhaps you were lacking in some of these, I pray that as we consider the resurrection of our Savior, that you'll be filled with these gifts that are so clearly evidenced in our text today. Number one, we discover that when they saw the resurrection of Christ, when they saw the resurrected Savior, they were blessed, first of all, with the gift of gladness. The gift of gladness. Would you look with me in verse number 20? The Bible says, And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord The Bible says in John 16 and verse number 22, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Jesus said these words just a few short hours before his crucifixion. He was there in the upper room, and there was, a, there was a real sense of heaviness and of sorrow in that room. And he read the room. He knew exactly what was going on in their hearts as he's talking to them about going away and about them seeing his face no more. He could see that there was, there was sorrow that had filled their heart. And he says, you, you have sorrow now, but I'm going to see you again. And when I do, your heart shall rejoice. Do you know what he's speaking of? I believe he was speaking of this day. I believe he was speaking of the day in which he would appear to them and their hearts would be filled with gladness. His death had brought great sorrow and fear to their hearts and to their lives. The Bible is careful to tell us, isn't it, that they did not expect a resurrection from the dead at all. In fact, if you'll look with me in verse number nine of this same chapter, the Bible says that in verse number eight, then went in also the other disciples, speaking of Peter, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. On the day he arose, the women came to the tomb to anoint his body for burial, and their greatest concern was how they were going to remove the stone that was in front of the place where he lay. That's what they were talking about. They had no anticipation that the stone would be removed already. They had no anticipation that the body would no longer be there. In fact, the the things that they were holding and that they were carrying in their hands were meant uh, to be used in the anointing of his dead body. That's why they were there. They had no anticipation that he was going to rise from the dead. Many of you have lost someone very close to you. We are aware that sometimes our mind plays tricks on us, doesn't it? as it relates to death and the loss of a close loved one. In other words, we sometimes as we we sleep, we have such vivid dreams that our loved ones are alive. And it feels and seems so real, doesn't it? Have you ever been through something like that? Where you lost someone, you buried them, you know that they're dead, you know they're with the Lord, you know you're going to see them again someday, but not here on this earth. And you go home and maybe several weeks, maybe even several years after, You lay down to sleep one night. You begin to dream such a vivid dream. And in that dream, that person is back. And they're with you. And you can talk to them. And you can love on them. And you can hug them and spend time with them. And it feels so real. And in moments such as this, there's joy and there's gladness. Because everything in our world was as it was back then. Our dearly departed loved ones are back where they were and where we think they should be. And the joy of that reunion is so special and it's so unique. But alas, alas, we awake. And after a very short time of joy and gladness, we discover 
It was all just a dream, a mirage. And our hearts are saddened afresh and anew by this renewed reality that that person is still just as dead as they had been all along. And they're not with us, and we cannot hear their voice again, and we cannot speak to them and spend time with them again. But imagine, imagine for a moment that it was true. Your loved one that you witnessed die, that you viewed their body in a casket in some funeral home somewhere, that you knew was buried in some cemetery, is now standing before you, speaking to you verbally, and showing you physically that they are risen. Can you imagine the gladness and the joy that would fill your heart? Oh, perhaps maybe there'd be some fear initially, because we don't expect that, do we? No, reality tells us that when our loved ones die and, and we bury them, we'll never see them again on this side of eternity. But if they were to walk into your room and if you were to touch them and if you were to behold them and if you were to hear their voice after that initial moment of fear and of doubt, you would be filled with gladness because that relationship has been renewed. Imagine what this must have been like for the disciples. They had watched him die. They had taken his lifeless body down off, off of the cross. They had, they had prepared his body in a hurried way for burial. They had been there and they'd watched as the stone was rolled in place and that it was sealed with the Roman seal. And they knew all of these things. They knew these things to be true. And now all of a sudden, he is standing in the midst of them and he is speaking to them. He is communicating to them. He is showing them the wounds in his hand and in his feet. He is inviting them to touch him. And the Bible says that they were filled with gladness. Well, I would imagine they were. I would imagine they were. Can I ask this question? Does the resurrection of Christ still provide gladness for us today? I believe it does, doesn't it? It provides gladness for us today when we consider that our Savior, our, our, our King of kings and our Lord of lords, our Messiah, Jesus, he is no longer dead. He is alive forevermore. And how does that make us glad? How does that fill our hearts with rejoicing? Well, number one, the resurrection makes us glad because it guarantees another resurrection. It makes us glad because it guarantees another resurrection. I want you to hold your place here in John chapter 20. And I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, would you? Would you find your place there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? And Paul writes this particular chapter. And it seems as if he writes because he's correcting some thinking in the minds of the believers at Corinth who perhaps had been taught or who had been misled into believing that there was no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Now this life is all there is, and when you die, you're buried, and that's the end. And Paul writes to correct the record. And he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And look what he says in verse number 14. He said, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also vain. Now that word vain, it just means that it's empty, it's worthless, it's meaningless. So we talked a little bit of this morning about gathering together on the first day of the week. Can I just be real honest with you? If Jesus Christ is still buried somewhere, then we should all just go home right now. We should close our Bibles. We should go to our cars. Tomorrow we'll put this building up for sale and we'll sell it to the highest bidder and we'll never assemble again because listen, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain. It makes no, no, it makes no point for us to be here. And our faith is also vain Look with me, if you would, in verse number 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. 
Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. They're gone forever. You'll never see them again. If Jesus didn't come out of that grave, you'll never see your dear mother, your dear father, your dear son, your dear daughter, your dear spouse. You'll never see them again. Just give up that hope because they're perished. If Jesus didn't come out of that grave, that's it. Look at verse number 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of death. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, just as Adam messed everything up, Jesus makes everything better. In other words, just as Adam sinned and as a result, all of us are born in sin, as Jesus rose from the dead, if you believe on the name of Jesus, you too someday will have an opportunity to rise from the dead. And that makes our hearts glad. As a pastor, I spend way too much time in funeral homes and cemeteries and hospitals. I hate it. I hate every minute of it. I want to be there because our people need us in those moments, but I hate being there. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. In fact, you know as well as I do that as we drive to those places, there sometimes is often a, just a, a, a sense of us that is, is overwhelming in, in which we just, I don't even want to be here. But can I tell you that I can, I can go to those places and I can fight through those, uh, I can fight through those fears and through those anxieties and here's why. Through, I can do that through faith. Because as Jesus Christ came out of that tomb, the Bible says he becomes the first fruit. You know what that means? That means he becomes the prototype. In other words, just as that stone was rolled away that would have been impossible for those women as they were going to roll away, listen, it didn't need some human being to roll it away. One of these days, listen, one of these days, a trumpet is going to sound and the, and the stones are gonna roll away in front of every tomb that had someone who was buried in it that knew Christ Jesus as their savior. And we're coming out of that place and it ought to make us glad. It ought to fill our hearts with joy. I can be glad even in life's most difficult moments because the resurrection tells me this is not all that there is. Now listen, I'm not looking to die. I'm not in a hurry to die. But I know, I know if and when I do, this is not the end. And that makes me glad. Does it make you glad as well? It ought to. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it fills our hearts. It gives us the gift of gladness. But no, secondly, the resurrection not only makes us glad because it guarantees another resurrection, but the resurrection makes us glad because it guarantees victory over darkness. Now in John 20, going back to John chapter number 20, we discover in verse number 19, the Bible says that the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. They're in a, they're in a house somewhere and they're behind a closed door because they're filled with fear. And yet something happened that night that would change their perspective and their attitude for the rest of their lives. Now we don't have time to, to, to look at these scriptures, but if you were to take your Bible and you were to contrast what is found in John 20 and verse number 19 with what is discovered in Acts chapter number four, verses 18 to 20, and Acts five, verses 27 to 29, and verses 40 to 41, you will discover, listen, that the Jews that they were afraid of in John chapter number 20 have not been done away with. The Jews are still very much in positions of power and positions of authority. But you will discover that in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter number 5 and throughout really the remainder of the New Testament period, the first century, you will discover that never again, never again were the disciples filled with such fear as they were in John chapter number 20. 
In fact, you will find them standing before councils and before, before uh, tribunals and before uh, judges and chief priests, and you will find them saying things like this. Whether it, be, whether it be wrong to do what we're doing, you can all decide, but we're going to obey God rather than man. You will find them even suffering and being beaten for the sake of the gospel and leaving that place. And the Bible says that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Now you tell me, what made the difference? What made the difference? The Jews were the same. The disciples were the same people that were filled with fear in John chapter number 20. What is the difference in three or four chapters? The difference is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you and I understand that our Savior is risen, that he is alive forevermore, we don't have to be filled with fear any longer, do we? No, no, we, we can have confidence. We can have boldness because we know our Savior lives. Jesus reminded his disciples in Matthew 10 and verse number 28, he said, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. You see, you see, up until Christ's crucifixion and burial and resurrection, there was great fear of those who were able to kill body because as far as we knew, there was no resurrection. But when Jesus came out of that tomb, boy, that, that scripture reconnected with those men. And they remember, remember when he said that? We, we, we don't have to be afraid of these people. All they can do is hurt us physically. They cannot touch our soul. They cannot touch our eternal destiny. He says, be, fear not them which kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, that's God, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The resurrection proved that only God, that only God is victorious over the powers of death and darkness. And it reminds us of the truth that's found in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 4, where it is written, ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I can live this life without fear because I serve the one, I know the one who conquered, who prevailed over death and over darkness. Can I say secondly, not only to give them the gift of gladness, but the resurrection of Jesus and seeing him there in that place gave them the gift of peace. Would you look in verse number 21? Verse number 21, the Bible says, then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Now just a few days before, perhaps maybe in the same place where they're assembled once again on this night, on this first day of the week, Jesus had said these words to them in John 14 and verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So we discover here that Jesus had already said, listen, I am leaving, but I'm not leaving you without something very valuable. I'm leaving you with peace. He was very careful to tell them prior to his crucifixion that he was going to give them peace and that his peace would be different than the peace that the world could offer them. If you were to look up the definition of the word peace in your, in your, def, in your dictionary, you would discover that it is defined as a state of quiet or tranquility. It is freedom from disturbance or agitation. Now that's what the word peace means, a dictionary definition. But can I say that's the peace that the world can bring. It is a state of, uh, of quiet or tranquility. It is freedom from disturbance or agitation. But you know as well as I do that Christ was offering, what he was offering them, the peace he was offering them would never be freedom from disturbance or agitation. Right? I mean, how many of us understand that that is very, very rare in the Christian life? And can I just be honest with you, that's very rare in the unsaved life as well. 
Oh, you may have a few moments in which you get away from everything and you walk into the woods somewhere and you spend a few quiet moments in which there's no one around. But you know as well as I do, those moments are few and far between. And you know that that is not what Christ was promising his disciples. A life free from disturbance or agitation. The Christian life is anything but a life free from disturbance and agitation. The the very moment that they were living through as they stood there in this room when he pronounced this blessing of peace upon them was a moment of disturbance and agitation. It was a moment of great fear. They felt threatened and they felt very vulnerable at this moment. Yet Christ was definitively offering them peace. What kind of peace do you suppose he's talking about? If it's not a peace that is free from freedom or freedom from disturbance or agitation, what kind of peace do you suppose he's talking about? Well, I'd say first of all, He's offering them peace that provides reconciliation with God. The gift of peace. Peace that provides reconciliation with God. You see, there's more than one definition to peace in your dictionary. If you were to read read down a little bit further, you would discover that the secondary definition is not inclined merely to a few brief moments of freedom from disturbance, but rather, this peace is defined as harmony, Concord, a state of reconciliation between parties at variance. Do you suppose that maybe the peace that Christ was offering them was not freedom from disturbance and agitation, quiet and tranquility, but rather he was saying this. He was saying, listen, because of my resurrection, listen, we don't have to be at odds with one another any longer. You are reconciled. You have made peace with God through my death on the cross, through my burial, and through my resurrection, through the power that I displayed over death and hell and the grave. You see, as a sinner, I was born separated from God. I was born condemned to his wrath. However, his death and burial and resurrection makes reconciliation possible for me. The Bible says in Romans 5, verses 1 to 4, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. Paul would later write in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You see, when you were born, when I was born, we were born at war with God. We were warring with one another. He was telling us, hey, here's the way to go. And we said, I don't want to go that way. I want to go my own way. I believe that I know what is best and I know what is right. Now listen, when you and I come to a point where we understand who we are as sinners and we understand who Jesus is as the Savior and we place our faith our trust in him at that moment. Listen, at that moment, we are given peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus looked at them and he said, peace I give unto you. Peace be unto you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, we're no longer at war with one another. I've done everything necessary to reconcile God and man with one another. Isn't that a glorious thought? The gift of peace, the resurrection of our Savior gives us peace We can be at peace with God. We can be reconciled with God through his resurrection. But not only peace that provides reconciliation with God, but we get the peace that also provides purpose for life and for living. Look, he says at the end of verse number 21, peace be unto you as my father hath sent me, even so send I you. 
Not only does the resurrection reconcile believers to God, but it also provides us with a new purpose or a new motive for life and living down here. And what is that purpose? What is that motive? It is this, we are sent, listen, we are sent by him with the glorious message of peace to the uttermost ends of the earth. Just as God the Father had sent his son to this earth to embody this message, the son now sends those of us who believe it to tell others that we might make disciples out of them. Can I tell you there is no greater purpose for life than living to tell others about the peace that Christ alone brings. You will never find more satisfaction and joy than you will, than you will by telling others this glorious news and seeing them converted. The hymn, So Send I You, has been called the greatest missionary hymn of the 20th century. It was first published in 1954 after having been written 16 years earlier by a Canadian school teacher named Margaret Clarkson. Margaret was born in 1915. She was a teacher in a gold mining camp in northern Ontario, Canada. It was a lonely life for this woman, but she also knew that this was where God wanted her to serve him. She had a great desire to be on a foreign field as a missionary, but because of her health, she was unable to go to this place. One day she was reading again the very verse that we've just looked at, John 20 and verse number 21. Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And while meditating on this verse, she wrote the words to a hymn that has become a favorite during missionary conferences, so send I you. Under her own words, she said, in 1935, teaching jobs were so scarce that I had to take my first job as a teacher in a lumber camp some 1,400 miles from home out in the Rainy River District of Northwestern Ontario, From there, I moved to the gold mining camp of Kirkland Lake, 450 miles north of Toronto. In all, I spent seven years in the north. She said, I experienced loneliness of every kind, mental, cultural, but particularly spiritual. For in all of those seven years, I never found real Christian fellowship. Churches were modern and born-again Christians, almost non-existent. I was studying the word one night and meditating on the loneliness of my situation and came in my reading to John 20 and the word, so send I you. Because of a physical disability, I knew that I could never go to the mission field. But God seemed to tell me that night that this was my mission field, and this was where he had called me. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to bind the bruised and broken, over wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake, to bear the burdens of a world aweary. So send I you to suffer for my sake. So send I you to loneliness and longing, with heart a-hungering for the loved and known, forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one. So send I you to love, to know my love alone. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will resign, to labor long and love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life and mine. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spend though it be blood, to spend and spare not. So send I you to taste of Calvary. Jesus Christ, listen, he offers us peace. Not just the peace of reconciliation with God, but the peace that provides a new purpose for life. To take this message of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and to distribute it, to pass it along to others who so desperately need to hear it. Can I say, notice thirdly, that we find not only do we, because of the resurrection of Christ, get the gift of gladness and the gift of peace, but we also receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Would you look in verse number 22? 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now just a few short nights prior, not only had he promised them that he was going to give them rejoicing and gladness, not only had he promised them that he was going to leave them with peace, but he had also promised them that they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. In that particular portion of Scripture, John 16, 5-7, he is referred to as the Comforter. He said, But I not, now I go my way to him that has sent me, and none of you asketh me whither goest thou. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. After blessing them with the gift of gladness and the gift of peace, the recently resurrected Savior also gave them one final gift, and that was the gift of the Holy Ghost. Christ had promised that with his going away, his ascension, he would send the comforter to them. Before he, had, he could go away, however, he had to complete one final task, one final work that he was sent to do, which of course was to suffer, bleed, and die, to be buried, and then to rise again. The work that he had been sent to do, listen, would remain un- incomplete without the resurrection. So in a very real sense, the resurrection provided one final hurdle that needed to be cleared in order for the gift of the Holy Ghost to be poured out on God's people. While the Holy Ghost would not fully come upon them until the day of Pentecost, Christ ceremonially gave them the Holy Ghost by breathing on them in this assembly this day. You see, remember, he said, I, I cannot, he will not come to you until I go away. And at this point, he hadn't even ascended yet. And yet there's a ceremonial passing of the torch in some respects. And why is the Holy Ghost such a gift? Why is that such an advantage to us? Well, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Ghost quickens. He's a gift to us because he quickens. Romans 8 and verse number 11, the Bible says, but, but, the spirit, but the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead also shall quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The scriptures tell us that the Holy Ghost was the quickening agent that raised up Christ from the dead. The gift of the Holy Ghost provides within us this same quickening and makes available to us this great power. Can I say there's no place for deadness and dying among believers and churches? There, there shouldn't be. Oftentimes we hear somebody say, that's a dead church. Well, if it's a dead church, they're dead because they want to be dead. Because listen, if you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, you have the quickening agent of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, who wants to give life to all things. Do you have the Holy Ghost? Do you have the Holy Ghost inside of you? If you do, then you are alive. Don't tolerate deadness in your Christian life anymore. And let's not tolerate deadness in our church anymore. We are alive through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. May God help his people to be full of life And may our life impact countless others. But not only is the Holy Spirit quickened, but he sanctifies. He sanctifies. 1 Peter 1 and verse number 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. See, the Holy Spirit at work in a life not only gives life, but it it also begins to grow fruit. Fruit unto sanctification. Fruit such as love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. And no doubt the list could go on and on. This, this fruit that would grow in them through the power of the Holy Spirit would set them apart from the world 
and make them look more like their Father, which is in heaven. Oh, what a day this must have been. What a day. For three days and three nights, their Savior, their friend, their companion, their teacher, their leader was dead. And they knew it. They had seen him die. They had seen him buried. They had watched as the stone was rolled in place. And now all of a sudden he was standing in their midst. He was speaking to them. They were able to touch him and handle him and see that he was real. And the Bible says that at that moment they were filled with three great gifts. Three gifts that are still made available to us today because of the power of the resurrection, the gift of gladness. Oh, listen, when we're reminded of what Christ did, our hearts are filled with joy because this life and this world is not all there is. No, there is, there's victory in this life and there's victory in the life to come. They were filled with the gift of peace. Peace that brought them reconciliation with God and, and, and peace that gave them a new purpose for living. I'm living for something beyond myself. If I'm just living to make some money and to have a career and that's all there is, then that's really not that great of a purpose, is it? But if I'm living for something eternal, something divine, I'm really making a difference. And finally, the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost who quickens, who gives life and the Holy Ghost who sanctifies, who helps me to live the life that is pleasing to our Lord and Savior. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. Great chapter, isn't it? The resurrection of Christ. Oh, what hope the resurrection fills us with. What joy it provides to us. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. I would ask that if you can, to stay seated for just a moment. Only folks that are moving are those who are making their way to the front to prepare for the invitation. Thank you so much for being here today and for listening so well. We're moving now into a portion of the service that we refer to as an invitation. That just simply means that we're going to invite folks to respond to what they've heard. You see, we never never preach just so we can take up 45 minutes or so of your time. No, we preach for a decision We preach for you to come to some type of life change and for you to make a determination, hey, the direction I was going before, I'm not going anymore. And so what will you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He is risen. The tomb is empty. What will you do with Christ and with his resurrection? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. 